We are in Galatians this morning. So if you've got a Bible, uh, pull it out. Galatians, we're working our way through Galatians, and we're still in chapter 1. Um, we've, we'll finish off chapter 1 today. So uh, we're just kind of systematically going through this ancient letter, the very first book in the New Testament that was written by the Apostle Paul to the churches in Galatia, in southern Galatia. And uh, we're going to pick it up this morning. We'll read a chunk of this, uh, starting in chapter 1, verse 11, and we'll go through to uh, verse 24. We'll read it all, I think, and then we'll talk about it after that. So, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any human source, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, who was Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. I don't know whether you were here last Sunday, but what an awesome service it was. And we had the testimonies of the uh, Alexander, the ladies Alexander, shall we call them. The uh, generations, mothers and daughters from this extended family in our church, the Alexander family. And it was interesting because that, I mean, that was the whole um, message really, was six testimonies back to back. These wonderful stories of God's grace and God's, God's faithfulness through a family, through lives that have been changed by the grace of God. And I was talking to someone after the first service and he said, you know, I, I came into church and when I figured out what was going on in the service, I, initially he said, I, I thought, ah, oh, you know, this, this isn't going to be the best thing for Mother's Day because there's people here who don't know Christ and, you know, it, what we need is, is a, a kind of an outreach message. What we need is like a gospel message. And then he said, but when I heard that, when I heard those testimonies, that was, that was powerful. You know, that was actually like convicting. That was powerful stuff. And it's true, you know, when you hear those kinds of stories, there is actually a huge amount of impact and power to challenge people who, who don't know Christ. There's a huge amount of power in personal testimony because, you know, you can poke holes in arguments and, and evidences and proofs and all that kind of stuff, but you can't argue with the story of a life transformed, can you? You know, you just get these, these stories of the grace of God. I think that's one of the most powerful evidences for the gospel and for Christ, that you could possibly have. And I would say that's the absolute best thing you can do if you've got people who don't know Christ sitting, sitting there because they can hear themselves in these stories. Yeah, I'm the person 
who only comes to church on Mother's Day. And here I am, and God starts working in their hearts. This is a little bit like what's happening with Paul in Galatians. He's up against this opposition to the gospel. He's up against people who, who are accusing him of basically making up the gospel. And he's on the back foot trying to defend himself, trying to defend Jesus, trying to defend the gospel he's preaching, is why he says in verse 11, I want you to know the gospel I'm preaching is not of human origin. This is the charge that he's, that he's facing, that the gospel is just this, the, at least Paul's gospel, is just uh, something he's, he's contrived, something that he's misheard, something that he's muddled up from the true gospel. And you think of all the things Paul could have done to respond to this charge. He could have started quoting the Old Testament to, to demonstrate who God is. He could have talked about the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. He could have talked about Jesus' life and his teachings. He could have quoted this person or that person. But what he does is he immediately begins telling his story. He just falls into this narrative. He just falls into this autobiography. And in fact, a huge part of the next couple of chapters is Paul's story. It's this autobiography of Paul's life through all kinds of events and twists and turns. In Paul's mind, the best way to counter those who would argue against the truth of the gospel is simply, I'm going to tell my story. This is what God's done in my life. This is who I am. Because he knows that there's such power in it, such incredible power, when you can just testify through your own life to the experience of receiving God's grace and being transformed by God's grace. And so we're going to look a little bit here at Paul's story, the way he tells it. And hopefully in that, we can see a little bit of our own stories and trace a little bit of our own journeys and think a little bit about how God's grace has transformed us. Where were we and, and where are we and where, where, where are we going? Paul starts off by talking about his life before he met Jesus. And I don't know, you know, we, we, we have this kind of idea sometimes of, of Paul's life before he was a Christian, that he was kind of just this, this do-gooder who was trying to earn his salvation but didn't really get it. And just, he was a bit muddled up and he was a bit, you know, just, just kind of ignorant. And then eventually God got a hold of him. But in fact, Paul knew exactly what he was about before he became a Christian. He had a very well-developed worldview, not a Christian worldview, but a worldview. Paul was a Jew. Paul was a Pharisee, which is one of the strictest, really the strictest sect within Judaism. These Pharisees, I mean, the, the actual literal translation of Pharisee is separatist. These are the guys who separate and call others to separate from anything un-Jewish. Any Gentile contact, any kind of you know, outside influence that is going to contaminate and corrupt and spoil us. The Pharisees are urging Israel, pull back, separate, stay away from. No eating with Gentiles, no trade with Gentiles, no uh, commerce, no relationship. Just you know, pull back. We've got to be separate. And so they develop all these rules to keep people separate and to keep people clean and to keep people, in their words, pure and undefiled. This is why Jesus had so many run-ins with the Pharisees, because they had so many rules. They'd take one rule of the law and they'd put 10 others around it just to make sure you didn't break the one rule. You couldn't possibly because you've got 10 other fences before you even got to that thing that just kept going and going and going. So Paul is one of these Pharisees. He's fervently trying to protect what he thinks is the purity of Israel to prevent it from being defiled. 
by foreign nations, outside influence. But within the Pharisee group, Paul actually belongs to a subgroup within Pharisaism, a group called the School of Shammai. You have within Pharisaism at the time the School of Hillel, they follow Rabbi Hillel, and you have the School of Shammai, follow Rabbi Shammai. And these guys, these, these rabbis, Hillel was, was a bit looser. He was a bit more liberal. He was a bit more open. But Shammai, he was a hardliner. He was the staunchest of all staunchos as far as Pharisees went. And Paul is in that team. That's Paul's team. And the distinctive feature of Shamite Pharisees, as opposed to every other type of, of Jew or Pharisee, is that they were not only protecting Israel from outside influence, they were prepared to use violence to do it. That's why Paul talks about that. You see that little phrase there, I was very zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Now we think, oh, that's nice. Paul was really enthusiastic for the traditions of his fathers. Paul was really just energized and motivated. We think that's what zeal and being zealous means. Zeal in the first century was a technical term that referred to taking the life of another person, causing bloodshed and violence. Zeal was something you did with a knife. Zeal was something you did with a sword. And people who belonged to the school of Shammai exercised their zeal by moving through crowded cities and marketplaces with with baggy clothing and concealed weapons, knives, and pulling them out at the opportune moment and taking out someone in the crowd who they saw as a compromiser, a collaborator, and then moving on while that person fell to the ground dead. This is the kind of group that Paul is associated with. The closest equivalent that you could get today to what Paul was would be a political or religious terrorist. Paul is basically a terrorist. Pre-Christian Paul. That's what he's doing. He is taking the life of unarmed civilians motivated by a political and religious ideology. And for Paul, there's no distinction between politics and religion. It's the same thing. Israel is the state and Israel is God's people. And Israel needs to be freed. And so anyone perceived to be contaminating Israel, leading Israel astray, going after strange teachings, following strange gods, Paul's team are going to take them out however they can. That's why Paul becomes a persecutor of the Jesus movement. Because he's a Shamite Pharisee. That's why Paul stands there and watches Stephen, one of the first Christians, get killed by, by, being throw, by having rocks thrown at him. And Paul stands there holding someone's coat, watching and supervising and overseeing. This is the team Paul's playing on. This is the hardline, militant, zealous Judaism that Paul represents, this political terrorist Paul. That's who he was. And it's interesting that Paul doesn't shy away from it. You know, after becoming a Christian, it's not like Paul says, well, that was just that and I'm not even going to, you know, I'm just going to pretend like that didn't exist. Paul actually talks about it a reasonable amount in his life. That's how we know all this stuff because he keeps referring to it. And he's not proud of it, but he tells his story. He just puts it out there. And I think for him, it kind of keeps him grounded and it keeps him very, very humble about receiving God's grace and having this high call of apostleship. He places that next to the fact that he'll also call himself the less than the least of all of God's people. 
the chief sinner. You know, he uses these kind of terms because he's so conscious of who he was and what has changed. Probably none of you have that kind of background that Paul had. Probably no political religious terrorists in the audience, I hope. But, you know, we've all got a past and we've all got a time before we met Jesus. We may not be able to remember a lot of it. You may have become a Christian at a very early age. For some of you, you can remember exactly what that life was like. But there is real value in reminding yourself of who you were before you became a Christian. What was life like for you? What were you driven by? You think about those years as best you can remember them. What, what was it? What was, what was your life kind of centering around? Where was it heading? Where were you going? What motivated you? What angered you? What pressed your buttons? These are useful questions because they remind us of the trajectory that our life was on before we encountered Jesus. Ask yourself this question. Who would you be today if you hadn't met Jesus? What would your life be like today now if you never got saved? If you never, and maybe you're not a Christian here this morning and you're still there, that's where you are, but, but who would you be? I know for me, one thing, and I, you know, without being too specific, but one thing I know is that if I'd never met Jesus, I would be an utterly self-absorbed person. Now, some of you say, what's changed? You know? but, <laughs> but I know, I know in a lot of ways that, that that's who I would be, just totally preoccupied with me and my interests. And I can think of specific ways that would, that would, that would come out in my life. Who would you, you know, what would it be? What, what, where would you be if you hadn't known Jesus? Because by remembering that past, we don't want, we're not trying to glorify it. We're not trying to say, well, I wish I was still that person. But we're just trying to remember it because when you remember the pit that God has pulled you out of, it makes you a little more thankful for the grace of God that's rescued you. you know, and it may not be any terrible story. You, know, you hear of people, they give these testimonies, you know, I was a drug dealer and I was a gang leader and I was you know, a serial killer and... Then I was eight years old and I became, you know, this. I'm like, whoa, what's going on? And you just, you know, you almost get into the pattern of like, I wish I had that kind of story, you know. You know, you don't need to wish you had that kind of story, you know. If someone's got that story, that's okay. For me, my life, you know, I've been pretty, pretty sheltered Christian upbringing, really. Nothing particularly amazing, no, no, no major sort of sufferings. And there was a long time I, I kind of almost felt like I was a second-class Christian because of that, because I didn't have the big story. You know, but the, the, whatever your past is, that's your past, and that's fine. And you and you and you respect it, and you remember it, and you just ha- it, it is what it is. But I don't think as Christians we're called just to let go of that and pretend like it never existed. We remember it, and it reminds us of hopefully some kind of contrast. So Paul talks about who he was as this political terrorist, as this religious terrorist, zealous for the traditions of his fathers to the point of of persecuting followers of the Jesus movement. And then he talks about this moment when he encountered Jesus. And you don't get the full story here. That's um, in the book of Acts. You can read the whole story of Paul on the Damascus Road, meeting Jesus, the blinding light. But here he just describes, it's the only time he really talks about this moment of conversion. He describes it so succinctly in verse 15. He says, But when God 
who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Don't you love the way he talks about when God who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace? You know, all those years that Paul was just this maddened, um, aggressive, militant zealot, God had set him apart from birth and called him by his grace. Isn't that awesome? You know, all those years that you were running in the opposite direction, all those years that you were just doing your own thing and God, you can just go dump or just dealing with God on your terms, your way at your time, that whole time God had his hand on your life. Isn't that fantastic? He just had his hand there. He called you from birth. He'd set you apart even before you are born. He's just patiently waiting, patiently waiting for the day when you would turn back towards him. Isn't it amazing to think, even those of you today that don't yet know Christ, you know, he's got his hand on your life. And he's just waiting. He's set you apart. He's called you, but he's also given you the ability to choose. And he's now just waiting. But I just love that picture, Paul. You know, he's called me, he set me apart even before I had any idea what was going on. God just has his hand there. He just knows exactly what's going on. And he's just waiting for me to turn, open my arms up and come into the kingdom. And Paul says, you know, what it was like is that at the point Jesus did reveal himself to Paul, he talks about it as God revealing his son in me. He doesn't say revealing his son to me, which is what we might expect, but he actually talks about it like an in this profoundly internal experience that there was this internal awakening of God just revealing in Paul's heart, in the core and fiber of his being, revealing Jesus in him. This internal awakening. There's a very subjective element to it of Paul just being awakened to the reality of who Jesus is. And you imagine at that moment what it must have been like for Paul just realizing this guy who I've been trying to stamp out his followers, he is the one. He is the one carrying the hopes and the aspirations of Israel. He's the one through whom all God's promises are being fulfilled. I have so utterly misread God's plan. Just the shame that Paul must have felt in that moment as he just realized how wrong he had been about Jesus of Nazareth. There's this deep awakening. I don't think Paul had everything figured out right then. It wasn't like he suddenly you know, knew the whole deal. But just a basic awakening of the presence of Jesus and the power of the, of the crucified and resurrected Jesus in his life. There's this subjective element to it. It's like an awakening. It's this realization. Some writers like John call it a rebirth, being born again. There's a subjective element, but there's also an objective element, and that's important because some people want to point to Paul and others and say, well, it was just like this thing that happened in him, but there was no real objective basis to it. You know, Jesus didn't really show up. It's just kind of Paul just had this spiritual experience, this spiritual emotional experience. But who Paul met on the Damascus Road was the resurrected Jesus, the actual person objectively right there before him. wasn't just an internal revelation. It was that. But it was grounded in the objective basis of this is Jesus, risen from the dead, physical, bodily Jesus, standing in front of Paul with a nail-pierced hand saying, why are you persecuting me? There's an objectivity as well. And this is a good way, I think, of thinking about Christian conversion. It, 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 it includes both the subjective 
and the objective. It's got to have an objective basis in the God who really is there and really is real. And you really are acknowledging the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's not just an emotion or a buzz or a whatever. It's objective, grounded in the facts of history and the truth of the Scriptures. But there is also a subjective element to it. And you don't want to think about being converted or becoming a Christian just as this kind of mental assent to certain truths, just kind of praying a prayer, going through a, going through a formula, doing just a, a routine kind of thing. There is a subjective awakening. There is a realizing. There is something that rises in our hearts and starts a new work. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to feel different, but there is a subjectivity to it. And this can look so different to different people. There is no one set experience that every person goes through when they become a Christian. It's just not the same. In fact, I would say it's different for every single person, which is why it's so you can't just have a little formula. You can't just have a little thing you roll out and, well, this is the funnel everyone's got to go through. God changes hearts one by one and everyone in different ways. Let me read you a couple of stories here. Some of my favorite stories of um, p- people becoming Christians. One is John Wesley famous Methodist preacher. He talks about the night uh, that he was converted, Wednesday, very specific here, Wednesday, May the 24th, 1738. He says, In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, pretty specific here, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ... I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. So there's there's the experience of a heart strangely warmed. Not everybody's experience. But it's one man's journey of what it was in that moment. When, he had, when God revealed Jesus in him. I'll give you another one. C.S. Lewis. This is a classic. He says, You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. Imagine having this testimony in church. You know? <laughs> That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England, a prodigal who was brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. Isn't that amazing? This is C.S. Lewis's conversion story, the most dejected, reluctant convert in all of England. And sometimes that's how it happens. You know, he's just the inescapable reality of who God is. Just, it's just there. He can't deny it, even though he wants to deny it, even though there's a lot of him is screaming out against it. It's the inescapable reality of who God is. I don't know what your story is of that moment. I mean, think about what it was like. For me, it wasn't, I can't even point to a specific day or time. 
I mean, I, I wish I could in some ways, but, you know, p- some people have this. You know, I went forward, I prayed a prayer, I did this thing. For me, I, all I can look at is a period of maybe three or four years between the ages of about 11 and 14 when gradually I came into a relationship with Jesus. Gradually I began to figure out, and still am, what it means to follow him. Gradually began to surrender my life to him. Gradually began to develop a living relationship, an actual personal relationship with God through Christ. You know, and for a long time I kind of felt like there was something wrong with me because I couldn't point to the time. You've got to have the moment. It's quarter to nine on the 17th of May. You know? But I didn't have that. But what I've come to realize is it's not about finding exactly exact time. It's about knowing now that I'm saved. It's about knowing now that I have a relationship with Jesus, that, I, that I'm in the kingdom and that I have this relationship with him today. That's the most important thing. You may be like me. It may be more of a process. You may be in that process. You may have come through it, but you're like, man, I can't even point. That's okay. For some people, conversion is like turning a steam liner around takes time and you've got to get the engines working in the other direction and it's just this whole thing for others it is black and white it is night and day and you can know, you just know exactly when it was there is no one size fits all conversion story don't try and borrow someone else's don't try and feel like you need to conform you may feel differently you may have felt differently after that moment you may have woken up the next morning and the grass looked greener than it ever had you may have woken up the next morning feeling groggy and tired and the grass still looked like it needed to be mowed. You know, it, it, there's just no particular style. Sometimes there's a real sense of ecstasy almost. Sometimes you just don't, it's just life, but you know that change has happened. Most important thing is that you have stepped into a personal relationship with Jesus. This is what Paul knew. This is what he could hold on to. That there's been a dying and there's been a rising. Not just Jesus' death and resurrection, but mine too. I've died to something. I've left behind an old way of thinking and an old way of living, even though it takes a long time to change. And I've risen to a new life with God in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit. It's death and resurrection. Sometimes over years, sometimes in a moment. Paul says, God revealed his son in me. And we need a, you need to know your conversion moment. Because that's something to hold on to. That's something to cherish. That's something to to thank God for. Maybe it was decades ago for you, but what was it? What was it like? And then Paul goes on finally, and he talks about what has happened since. After he met Jesus. So you've got the before, then the encounter with Jesus, and then things that have changed. And he gives various details about places he's traveled and people he's met. But I love this bit at the end when he talks about In verse 22, I was personally unknown, he says, to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. Now, you better believe they actually did know about Paul because he had been the most militant persecutor of the Jesus movement. So he's not saying these guys didn't know who I was, they'd never heard my name. What they didn't know is the transformation that had happened. All they knew is Paul, the militant zealot uh, Pharisee, that basically is going to come knock on our door, drag us into prison and see if he can get us executed. That's who they knew. What they didn't know was this Damascus Road experience that had radically transformed Paul of Tarsus so that now he was engaged in the same mission as them, the same mission that he'd tried to shut down. And, and apparently what happens here is that this report about Paul's transformation gets back to these churches. And, and, and Paul says in verse 23, they only heard the report. 
the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. They didn't praise God at first. They thought Paul was probably trying to infiltrate their ranks by selling them a story. Oh, I've been transformed too. Hallelujah. I know Jesus. Let me into your house. You know, but over time, they saw the change. They heard the report. They heard of Paul going around and, and engaging in debate with the very Pharisees that he used to be on that team. And now he's taking them on and saying, man, you guys, Jesus is the one. We've been missing it. We've been missing it. We've been missing it. Paul is now fervently defending the gospel. What they see is the transformation of grace. What they see is this before and after. They hear this report. The man who was formerly against us is now on the same team as us. Now he's been transformed and that leads them to glorify God. And this as Christians is something that we need, I think, to learn to look back and see what kind of transformation has happened before I met Christ and now after. Because, man, we get so hung up on looking ahead of us, don't we? And we get so depressed, I know I do, at how far we've got to go. Man, I feel, you know, I'm just a, an infant spiritually and I've just got so much stuff I've still got to deal with and I make so many mistakes. But if you can look behind you and just see, you know, look how far God's already brought me. Look at what He's done in my life. Look at maybe just one little change that's just starting to happen in your life. One way in which the grace of God has actually transformed your life. It can just lead us to have, just to relax a little bit, take the guilt off and actually thank God. You've brought me this far. It's like the old hymn says, "'Tis grace that brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home." You know, that's the pattern, isn't it? Grace has brought me this far. Learn to look back on your own story and identify maybe just in the smallest of ways, something started to change. What has changed for you? Since the time before you knew Jesus, what has changed? What's changed in your thinking? What's changed in your character? What's changed in your relationships? Anything? What's changed in the way that you think about other people and the way that you relate to God? What, what has shifted? What has changed? Can you see yourself in this report that came back about Paul? The man who formerly persecuted us, is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. What would that report look like about you? The man or woman who formerly X is now what? You know, what is it? You fill in the blanks for you. The person who formerly was this, doing this, thinking this, being this, is now not that you're perfect, not that you've arrived, of course not, but you're on, there's a newness, there's a path, there's something. What's happening? What's changing? What has changed? When we learn to tell our stories like this, there's an incredible power. There's an incredible power for other people. Because I think far more than arguments, proofs and logic, these stories, this before and when I met Jesus and what has changed after I met Jesus have incredible power to speak to the hearts of other people. And maybe next time you get into a conversation with someone and, and there's maybe some small opening just to say something and lead the conversation in a certain direction, maybe rather than going to the 10 proofs for God's existence, maybe just tell your story. Maybe just learn to tell what's the narrative for you. Learn it. Write it. Rehearse it. So that you could just say, well, let me just tell you what has happened, what God has 
done. And people, man, you can't argue with that. They may have a different story, okay, but here, this is what God's done in my life. And it has power as well for us, doesn't it, to encourage our hearts. Stop thinking just for a minute about how bad you are and how far you've got to go and just be grateful for how far God's already brought you. Look at what he's done. Look at that person you used to be. Look at who he's changed. Look at maybe the baby steps that you've already taken. Be thankful for that. Learn to thank God for the steps you've already taken and trust him that he'll lead you. He'll complete the work. He'll lead you home in his time, in his way. Don't heap condemnation upon yourself about that. You just praise God because of how far you've come and you leave him with the rest. Take that attitude of grace. Learn the before. Remember that. Celebrate the conversion, the moment when you met Jesus and cherish the transformation that grace has worked in your heart.